Russia. Igor Kolikyev was speaking after pro-Russian officials said they plan to ask President Vladimir Putin to annex the region. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. The time's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A very warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3 on Thursday the 12th of May. Price rises in the United States eased in April, but not by as much as economists had forecast. The annual pace of inflation declined from 8.5% in March to 8.3% last month, but the rate of price increases remained at a 40-year high. Inflation was driven higher by increases in items such as food, housing, airfares and new cars and would have been even higher had it not been for a moderation in fuel prices. Inflation in China in April came in hotter than expected with consumer prices rising the most in six months. The consumer price index rose by 2.1% year on year in April up from 1.5% the previous month. Food prices rose by 1.9% last month from a year earlier, up from a fall of 1.5% in March. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang on Wednesday urged officials to use fiscal and monetary policies to stabilise employment at the economy. China's state broadcaster CCTV reported that a state council meeting headed by Premier Li was concerned that the economy had come under greater downward pressure in April due to the latest coronavirus outbreak and hit by a bigger-than-expected impact from international developments. The China Passenger Car Association reported Wednesday that Shanghai's big automakers saw production plunge by 75% in April from March. COVID lockdowns have halted nearly all non-essential business in the Shanghai area. The auto sector in China accounts for about one-sixth of jobs and roughly 10% of retail sales. And Cathay Pacific Chairman Patrick Healy said yesterday that Hong Kong is falling behind the rest of the world in reopening from the pandemic. In March, Cathay was operating at below 2% of passenger capacity and Mr Healy said there had been a material impact on profitability in the first months of 2022. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and the Shah from BBVA Research. Discussing the Philippines' presidential election is Aris Aragay, Professor of Political Science at the University of Philippines. Money Talk on Your stocks resumed their slide on Wednesday after core inflation remained hotter than expected. The S&P 500, which had rallied as much as 1.2% earlier in the trading session, ended the day 1.7% lower at 3,935. The S&P 500 is down more than 17% since the start of the year. The Dow fell for the fifth day in a row, giving up gains of over 400 points to close 327 points, or 1% lower at 31,834. The Nasdaq Composite Index fell 3.2% to 11,364, its lowest close since November 2020 and taking its losses since its November 2021 high to almost 30%. In Europe, the Regional Stock 600 Index jumped 1.7% higher. London's FTSE 100 added 1.4%. 
Hong Kong shares rebounded on Wednesday after declining more than 7% over the previous four trading days. The Hang Seng ended the day up 191 points or 1% at 19,825. The Hang Seng Tech Index of Chinese technology stocks listed in the city jumped 2.9% higher. Mainland shares also climbed as declining virus cases boosted sentiment. The benchmark Shanghai Composite rose 0.8% to 3,059, helped also by the market regulator, which stepped in to try and soothe investors' nerves. Wang Zhangjun, vice chairman of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, described the recent sell-off as an overreaction to negative headlines. And he said the CSRC will roll out several measures to stabilise the market including encouraging more technology platform companies to go public, either domestically or overseas, increasing the participation of institutional investors and expanding the universe of stocks in the exchange link with Hong Kong. And he also pointed to the attractive valuations of Chinese equities. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil soared almost 6% to $107.58 a barrel. Gold is up 0.7% at $1,855 an ounce. The yield on the two-year Treasury note, which is particularly sensitive to monetary policy, rose three basis points to 2.65%. By contrast, the 10-year Treasury yield, which is driven by longer-term economic trends, lost six basis points to 2.93%. In the currency markets, the euro is trading at $1.05, the bucks at 129.8, Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.22.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 60 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.76 versus the dollar in offshore markets. And the Hong Kong dollar fell to the weekend of its trading band for the first time in three years. The local currency declined to 7.85 per US dollar, hitting the weekend of its Lao trading range for the first time since May 2019. The decline is likely to prompt the Hong Kong Monetary Authority to step in to prevent the Hong Kong dollar from declining any further. And the price of cryptocurrencies have plunged following the collapse of the Terra US dollar stablecoin. The price of the Terra US dollar algorithmic stablecoin is supposed to be pegged to the US dollar. But this week, its value crashed to as low as 20 cents, breaking its peg to the dollar. Backers of the coin are trying to raise about $1.5 billion to shore up the token. Bitcoin lost over 9%, falling to 28,160. That's the lowest since January 2021. Other cryptos slumped even more, with Avalanche plunging about 34%, while Solana tumbled more than 30%. And looking around uh, Asian stock markets as uh, trading gets going around the region, down in Australia, the SX200 is off 0.6%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has plunged about 1.25% at the open. The Cosby is off 0.8%. And futures markets pointing to a decline of about 400 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Time's 
It's eight ten and a half. Let's welcome our regular Thursday commentator, personal wealth advisor, NGO Rolfo. Morning, NGO. Morning to you, Peter. And also with us is Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research. Morning, Shark. Morning, Peter. Price rises in the United States did ease in April, but not by as much as economists had forecast. The annual pace of incla- inflation declined from eight and a half percent in March to eight point three percent last month, but price increases remain at a forty year high. On a monthly basis, consumer prices climbed another 0.3% in uh, in April. And an underlying gauge of inflation also rose more than expected. Core CPI, which excludes volatile items such as food and energy, increased 0.6% last month from 0.3% in March. And on an annual basis, that amounted to a 6.2% increase. Andrew, Shark, let me um, ask you for your thoughts, first of all, on this much-awaited data from the U.S., yeah, I think so now if you look at this uh, inflation outturns, they are uh, a little bit higher than expectation. It shows that uh, now the inflation is quite a structural one, right? Now everyone admits that uh, this kind of inflation thing will continue at least for a while. So we don't expect that this inflation will slow down. So at the same time, we can expect that the Fed, they are going to continue their monetary tightening. Uh, I think maybe aggressive than people expected. They already hiked 50 basis points uh, this month. I, I think that in future, they will continue to, to, to hike interest rate. Um, yeah, the, basically, it shows that the, the the, the, the market's worries are justified because now if you look at the market reactions, they have been done for almost five days a week. So, uh, yeah, this kind of thing, uh, I think will continue. Yeah, let's see. I agree with Shark, Peter. Um, I think that just to add to this, that currently, cockeyed as it sounds, the Fed policy is actually expansionary. It is not contractionary. What I mean by that is that the Fed funds rate in real terms is actually negative 7.3%. In other words, the 1% inflation rate and a nominal 8.3% inflation rate. Mm. So um, I just think that the 1% Fed funds rate, 8.3% Fed funds rate, inflation rate. So I think that the the policies is a little bit crazy. And as, as Shark is saying, they're going to have to increase a long, long time to get this thing up. One of the things that is helping to fight inflation is, of course, the stronger dollar, which reduces imported inflation. But that's going to result in reverse currency wars, whereby people decide that they worldwide want to raise the value of their currencies to fight their imported inflation, the non-dollar friends, of course. And that means that we have longer rising rates globally, and that's going to lead to a global recession. Mm. Uh, do you, we've, we've spoken about this several times, Enzio, and you've rightly pointed out in the past yes. that some of this inflation, commodity price inflation, food fuel inflation, is something that the Fed can't do anything about. Yeah. But are you worried now that this, this data suggests that uh, price pre- pressures aren't just exclusive to those sectors anymore related to 
Uh, to the pandemic. What we've got now is a rather broad-based trend that's affecting all the sectors. I I agree with you, and one can't sort of neatly do a fact analysis and say, but I I still think that about 40% of the U.S. inflation is in fact structurally driven, as Shark was pointing out. I call it supply-side driven, um, and so that's the cost-push inflation side of it. And they, I mean, it's amazingly that the Chinese are actually addressing this much better than the Americans by saying that they have to stabilize their output and their prices of things um, on the supply side of the equation. But I think that you're not going to find any of that going on in America because the Fed is so fixated on demand pull inflation. So how could the government stabilize prices? You, you probably remember, like I do, Enzio, back in the 1970s, we had, we had price controls, didn't we, in some countries, in the UK, I remember it. Do we need to go back to that now? I think that that might be one reason. John Connolly said something very interesting that the dollar may be our currency, our American currency, but it's your problem. Mm. In other words, that it's this, this, if the other countries don't up their, the value of their currencies, then in fact you'll find that they also have to, um, that they, they will have much more imported inflation. Do you worry, Shark, that uh, this is spreading now beyond just commodities and food? We've got housing costs up half a percent, uh, new car prices, they jump 1.1%, airfares surged 18.6% month on month. This is broad-based inflation now, isn't it? Yes, I think, as I said, this is a quite supply-side one. If you look at the labor market in the United States, it is very tight. People don't want to go out work. Yes. So, yeah, that's a big problem, I think. Huge. So, yeah, in terms of how to stabilize this inflation, of course, the first one, you need to stabilize people's uh, expectation. So the, the, the Fed, they need to show to the people that we have the capability to handle this kind of situation. Please be patient, have confidence on me. They're not showing it, though, <laughs> really, are they? They're, they're not showing it. I mean, I, I have a feeling that when we look back, um, or when historians look back at this period, in years to come, they'll be talking about perhaps maybe the most disgracefully negligent central bank policies ever in history. I mean, what the the Fed has done, what other central banks have done, is they've just sat on their hands while inflation Ah. has surged and done absolutely nothing about it. They've talked about it, but not done anything. So, Peter, that's because of the asymmetric monetary policy, which is they want their cake and eat it too. They want to control inflation, but at the same time, they want to ensure that markets don't fall too much, especially ahead of midterm elections in the U.S., especially ahead of presidential elections too. So I think I agree with you. Um, and I don't think we're going to go back to a Paul Volcker 20% Fed funds rate. But frankly, that's kind of what it's going to need to whack this one back down. What Shark mm. was saying about employment is interesting that there are twice as many unfilled jobs as there are unemployed. So, Shark, what can governments, um, maybe it's not just down to the central bank, it needs governments to do more as well. What can they do to bring down inflation? President Biden said on Wednesday that prices remain unacceptably high. Bringing down inflation was his top domestic priority. What can they do? 
Yeah, I think that it's a good idea for them to reduce uh, this kind of the tariff on Chinese uh, imports, right? I think mm-hmm. these are uh, yes, very easy point. solutions. Before we discuss about this one, I think now is time for them to do it. And uh, at the same time, uh, of course, uh, you can have some kind of the price control you certain sector, but you need to be very careful about this one. Uh, I, I'm afraid that now... Uh, in United States, it's very hard to push forward these kind of the measures because of these uh, political issues. If you impose this uh, price control, and you will get a lot of criticism from maybe republics. So, but at least uh, what they can do is uh, they lower these uh, tariffs on Chinese imports. Even I think they can consider to to, to lower their tariffs on all these uh, imports. Yeah. One also, if I may add. Would be to reduce the taxation of opening mines, opening oil fields, and all that kind of stuff. In other words, to make it cheaper for the companies to produce on the supply side. That might also help. But these aren't short-term measures. They take a while to feed through. Obviously, what about inflation in China? Then that also came in hotter than expected. Consumer prices. Rose the most in six months. The CPI rose by 2.1 percent year-on-year in April, up from one and a half percent the previous month, exceeding economists' expectations of a rise of 1.8 percent. Food prices they rose by 1.9 percent,、uh, up from a fall of one and a half percent in March. And on a monthly basis, the CPI rose 0.4 percent, also beating estimates for a gain of 0.2 percent. And what do you make of that data? Yeah, if you look at the Chinese、uh, inflation, I think it's、uh, quite under control、so、compared to United States. It's not inflation at all, <laughs> but still, I like to point out that.、Uh, But it's going up. Yeah, it's going up. Yeah, I like to point out this point because uh, uh, if you look at the uh, the the, the this, uh, uh, PPI, you can see this、uh, global commodity price.、Uh, they have a significant impact on Chinese PPI. So、mm. Chinese、uh, for short term, of course,、uh, they can、uh, severe this kind of、uh, pass through from、uh, international commodity price、uh, to their domestic price level. But、uh, over the time, I think that this kind of、uh, high Commodity price must reflect in both Chinese PPI and CPI. It's just a matter of the time.、Uh, of course,、uh, for the moment, because of the massive demand is not as strong, right? Because of、mm. this lockdown, because of the other issues,、uh, to some degree, it eased its uh, uh, inflation pressure. But if the economy start to recover, start the, the things start to normalize, I'm afraid this、uh, inflation will pick up,、uh, just as we have seen other countries in the region. Peter, also the imported inflation in China is not to be discounted with the renminbi falling. That's going to jack up the import prices of、mm-hmm. costs. It's interesting, though, that the Chinese export figures actually showed a slowdown in exports to America, which to me suggests that there's going to be the likes of a recession, a slowdown in the American economy, despite these strong labor markets, nobody wanting to work, basically, and that then in turn means that the Fed is going to overshoot on its too much tightening and, and tip the economy into recession. Yes. Well, 
Premier Li Keqiang, I mean, he's talking a lot about uh, the economic situation at the moment. There seems to be an interesting divergence now between what President Xi is talking about, which he is focusing very much on sticking with this zero COVID uh, policy. He doesn't mention at all the damage to the economy, while President Li Keqiang is focusing almost daily now on the economic damage and doesn't mention the zero COVID policy at all, but is urging officials to use fiscal and monetary policies to stabilise employment and the economy. We're hearing a lot of talk, but he didn't say exactly what um, policies he wanted, and we're not seeing a lot of policies, are we? What do you, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that now the problem is if you don't have uh, this... Uh um, fine tuning of this uh, zero COVID policy. Even you do more fiscal stimulus, do more monetary stimulus, uh, the impact will be very limited. And uh, especially, uh, I think that it's related to people's uh, confidence, right? Mm. For the investors, if you're saying that you know uh, China is still implementing this uh, zero COVID policy, so you don't want to make additional investment. So that's why. Uh, Although Premier Li he have re-emphasized this importance of the using policy stimulus, but so far we haven't seen a very powerful policy tool has been used. I think that even within the Chinese government, they uh, they cannot agree on many things related to economic side. Yeah. And you is the slowdown, the data that we're getting, is the Chinese slowdown much more severe than expected now and not just attributable to the COVID-19 lockdowns? Yeah, I th I'm actually going bearish on China for the first time. I think that the lockdown, it, it, you can't kill business and at the same time say that you want to stabilize employment. It just doesn't work. It's mm. a bit like trying to say, I want to stop drinking, give me another drink. <laughs> so um, that's not so good. There was a very interesting article by a Professor Xu Guo, excuse my terrible pronunciation, um, concluding that the current crisis is over 10 times worse than the previous Wuhan coronavirus mm. crisis. In other words, this time around, about one seventeen to 20 million people are being affected. 17 trillion renminbi worth of economy is being affected. In Wuhan, 20 years, a couple of years ago in 2020, 1.7 trillion won mm. was being affected. So the impact is severe, but um, again, I think that the, 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 there has to be a golden mean to also get the economy going again. Remember, there's okay. that National Party Congress coming up mm. in fall. Okay, thank you very much. Personal Wealth Advisor Enzio von Fahl, you hear him on Money Talk every Thursday, and the Shah, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.24. On the phone from Manila now is Aris Arage, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of the Philippines. Good morning, Professor Arage. Good morning. Um, let me ask you about the election then. Obviously, the, the son of late Philippines dictator Ferdinand Marcos won a landslide uh, presidential election victory uh, this week. Give us a sense of how big a bombshell this is, the return of the Marcos family to the presidential palace after being driven from power 36 years ago. Uh, indeed, this, is, this may come as a surprise uh, around the world. But here at home, uh, what is being revealed is that this has been a grand plan 
of the Marcos dynasty since they were ousted from power, and they really carefully and gradually built up their power base that culminated uh, in this election. It also helped uh, that Sara Duterte, Rodrigo Duterte's daughter, the outgoing president, uh, has decided not to run for president uh, because if that has become the case, then it would not be a landslide nor an easy victory. It might even be a loss for the Marcoses if if a son of a, of, of a Marcos and a daughter of a Duterte would come head-to-head in an election. So how has this happened? Have, have Filipinos decided to forgive uh, the Marcos family? I mean, there's a lot of young voters, clearly, who weren't even alive uh, at the time. Um, when they were in power, or have they bought into, basically, because there was really, on Facebook, there was a scrubbing of history, wasn't there, on social media, an almost outright denial of the atrocities of the, the martial law era. What, what, what's happened? Were, were voters duped, or have they deliberately decided we, we want them back? We want to forgive them? Right. Well, uh, on the supply side, there's been really a very robust disinformation Campaign, I would even call it an infrastructure uh, that uh, the Marcoses and their allies have built as early as 2016. So by 2022, it has become full fledged, it has become really uh, powerful. And uh, at that point, I think the narratives concerning uh, revising history and painting the, the martial law years as the golden year of the Philippines have become so pervasive. On social media, you're correct that a lot of uh, young Filipinos who comprise more than uh, 30% of the electorate uh, were the ones who did not live through the martial law years. So this is mm-hmm. also a damning verdict on our educational system as well as the inability of our social and political institutions uh, to continuously forge that collective memory on the atrocities of martial law. So what does it mean for democracy in the Philippines? Is it going to return to some sort of autocratic rule that is father imposed on the country? Uh, that might be the where things are heading. And, and hopefully uh, I, I, I could be wrong because no one wins if democracy loses uh, in the Philippines. But uh, you're talking about an alliance between two presidential offsprings whose fathers ruled the country in a very authoritarian, even dictatorial way. So the, the fruits uh, don't really fall away from the tree in that respect. Uh, although competence or charisma-wise, charisma wise, it leads uh, to be seen whether uh, the son of a Marcos and a daughter of a president, uh, of, of a Duterte, uh, could have those qualities that their fa- father had. But indeed, democracy will continuously be in danger, as it has been since 2016, since Rodrigo Duterte in power. And this is why the burden now is on the country's uh, uh, emerging, uh, formerly dormant civil society, independent media, as well as people's organizations, who will now be the bastion of vigilance against moves to further erode Philippine democracy. And how are businesses reacting to this result? Well, there's a quick uh, plunge in the markets. I think uh, this has been reported because even during the campaign, it was quite clear that the consensus of the investor, investment and business community is that there is uh, more risk if there will be a Marcos uh, presidency because there's really a lack of information uh, on how he will intend to, to run the country compared to the other presidential candidates. How, uh, however, 
the hope is that this uncertainty, this decline in, in confidence is just temporary because uh, uh, a continuous decline in, in all these respects, uh, there's been a, a credit downgrading uh, uh, yesterday, is all temporary because it's important that the incoming uh, presumptive president, uh, Marcus Jr., is able to uh, restore confidence Mm -hmm. in the economy. Because as I've said, a bad economy for the Philippines is bad for the entire republic. Has he set out any economic policies? Because he's got some challenges, hasn't he? Uh, He's going to inherit a large budget deficit. He's going to be under pressure uh, to sort of cut back on spending. Um, Has he said what he's going to do? Uh, We still are waiting for that because uh, I think what is important is that he puts up a very competent and even borderline technocratic economic team that will be relatively insulated from partisan uh, politics. This is quite hard, but that's the challenge because in a way that that was how President Duterte was able to power through his administration because he really left the economy to, to the experts. But I want to emphasize that Marcos Jr. is inheriting uh, the state of the Philippine economy almost similar uh, in 1986 when their family was uh, ousted from power. Uh, we are steep in debt. Uh, our economy is still uh, hasn't recovered from the contraction, double-digit contraction in, in 2020. So these are economic challenges. Uh, when the Marcoses assumed power it, it, through Marshall Law in 1972, the conditions in the country are not the same mm-hmm. as Marcus Jr. will be assuming the presidency uh, now in 2022. Professor Arrogay, thank you very much for joining me this morning. That's Aris Arrogay, who's Professor of Political Science at the University of the Philippines. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And unfortunately, Asian stock markets are plunging once again this morning. The SX200 in Australia is off over 1%. The Nikkei 225 now down 1.6%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea off 0.8%. The Hang Seng looks set to decline more than 400 points at the open. Do please join me again tomorrow morning for the final Money Talk of the Week at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for the news, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Paul Zimmerman. The weather forecast for today, cloudy to overcast with showers and squally thunderstorms. Those showers are going to be heavy at times. There is a thunderstorm warning in force this morning. The maximum temperature will be around 28 degrees. And then the outlook is for occasional heavy showers and squally thunderstorms tomorrow. And the weather is going to remain unsettled over the weekend. And temperature is going to fall slightly below 20 degrees early next week. The temperature right now is 25 degrees, 85% relative humidity. Times 8.32, here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. National Security Police night arrested four people, including Cardinal Joseph Zen and singer Denise Ho, in connection with the now-defunct fund that raised money for the legal and medical fees of anti-government protesters. More from Todd Harding. The others detained were former lawmaker and barrister Margaret Ng and cultural studies scholar Hoi Po Kern. All four were later released on bail pending further investigations. The Vatican had expressed concern over the reports that Cardinal Joseph Zen had been arrested. Organisers of the 612 Humanitarian Relief Fund ceased operations last year, soon after National Security Police revealed they were investigating the fund. 
The foreign ministry has criticized the World Health Organization for saying Beijing should change its zero-COVID strategy. Spokesman Zhao Lijian called the remarks irresponsible and said China was right to continue with its current COVID policy. China is fully equipped and capable of achieving dynamic zero. We also have full confidence in winning the hard battle of epidemic prevention and making a greater contribution to the global fight against the epidemic. At a news conference earlier, WHO head Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus had claimed China's efforts to eliminate the virus were unsustainable. An investigation ordered by the U.S. Interior Department has uncovered historical abuse of Native American children at boarding schools, including more than 50 burial sites. The Interior Secretary, Deb Highland, the first Native American to be given a cabinet post, called the findings heartbreaking and undeniable. The BBC's Will Grant has more details. Between the early 19th century and the late 1960s, the U.S. federal government forced Native American children to attend more than 400 government-run boarding schools. Now, a comprehensive government inquiry is beginning to reveal the full extent of the abuses which took place in those institutions, including beatings, withholding of food and solitary confinement. The investigation also identified burial sites at more than 50 of the former schools. A bill that would protect nationwide access to abortion in the United States has been blocked in the Senate. Democrats had attempted to introduce the measure ahead of a Supreme